People think that you have to get wealthy and give back to society. They don't understand that you give to society in order to get wealthy. It's huge. And so now we're talking about beliefs. And while we're talking about beliefs, let's talk about expectations because expectations are huge. It's not enough to want wealth. It's just not enough to want wealth. Everybody wants wealth. The question is who will expect nothing less? What's going on, guys? This is Passive Wealth Strategies for Busy Professionals. Thank you for tuning in. This is the show where we combine fire and real estate, bringing you the best experts from the financial independence retire early movement and the best experts from the real estate investing sphere, focusing on the passive aspects of real estate investing to help you reach your financial goals on your time frame and your terms. Today, we are talking with John Seforic, author of The Wealthy Gardener, lessons on prosperity between father and son. John set a very ambitious financial goal when he was 30 years old and he achieved it. He ended up retiring by 49, living on a pretty substantial passive income. But, you know, he worked for it. He made it happen. And today we get into lessons he learned along the way, lessons that he taught his son and also learned from his son in the process of writing this book. We talk about what it takes to build a multi-hundred-thousand-dollar passive income while working a full-time job. He was a chiropractor, and you know these are important lessons. If you're somebody who wants to build a passive income, you need to learn from people who have done it before. And John did it by investing in real estate. We talk about what he did in real estate and lessons that he learned. It really, there's a key lesson in here on what separated him and his results from his colleagues, especially his, his colleagues control for all the other variables, his other, his chiropractic colleagues. We talk about what separated his results from theirs. I'm not gonna tell you now, you gotta listen, but it's important, right? You gotta dig it out. Thank you for tuning in. For those of you who are new to the show, I'm your host, Taylor Lode. I'm a real estate investor, I'm a real estate syndicator. I buy real estate with passive investors and split the return. Love talking about these topics of financial prosperity, financial freedom, and really what it takes and the lessons that those who have achieved financial independence can teach those who have not. And that's what we're talking about today. So without any further ado, here we go with John Seforic, author of The Wealthy Gardener. John, thank you for joining us today. Taylor, I'm glad to be here. Thank you. I'm excited to talk with you, talk about the book, your whole financial journey. But for those out there who don't know who you are, can you introduce yourself for us a bit and tell us about what you've done? Absolutely. Uh, Taylor, I came from the middle class, blue collar kid growing up. My grandfather was a coal miner. He died penniless. Mother and father got together. When they got married, they bought a half a trailer, not a full trailer. I was the first person in my family who ever went to college. And I, went, I graduated from a chiropractic college at the age of 24, but I graduated with $200,000 worth of student debt. Uh, within a few years, I had a wife, had two children, and my wife stayed home with the kids. By the age of 30, I knew one thing for sure, man. I knew that I was a wage slave. I worked for food, shelter, clothing, and paying off this big invisible debt that nobody could see, but consumed my every minute. I was frustrated. I didn't see life working out this way for me. I was trapped. I had no options. And I, I decided right then and there, I, I, I made a goal 
going forward that I wasn't going to be enslaved by this financial condition. And so at the age of 30, I set a pretty big goal for not just financial freedom, but financial power. I wanted financial power so that I wouldn't be this small person in life like I had been up till then. So I set a goal for $240,000 passive income by the age of 50. That's 20 years out. And so what happened after that, my life filled up with the kind of things that earned that goal. I did retire uh, at the age of 49. I then set out to educate my son about the ways of prosperity. Instead of just sitting him down, I, I wrote a book. Uh, we would just go chapter to chapter on the principles, the timeless principles that were so important for me gaining prosperity in my life. I wanted to educate him. That took three years. And by the time that book was done, and I was writing full time, keep in mind I'm retired then, we decided to name it The Wealthy Gardener, Life Lessons on Prosperity Between Father and Son. And uh, it was self-published. It went on to become a bestseller. It kind of got some traction. Uh, it was bought by a publisher. It's now been translated into six different languages. So that's where we are today. That's very impressive. And you set uh, a big goal for your passive income so that you could retire and you achieved it. Do you think that I mean, a lot of people, when they set out their say retirement goal, they set it at like their subsistence level. Do you think setting a fairly ambitious income goal drove you to actually achieve it and, and maybe expanded your mind a bit? Or I mean, what are your thoughts about that? I can see both sides of that, to be honest with you, Trailer, uh, Taylor. I can, I can see why a big goal like that might crush some people. Okay, but I was coming with a lot of pain in my life. That was my driver because I was a slave, and so I wanted freedom. You know, people have given up their life for that, and I was. <laughs> I can I can tell you this: that financial freedom that was something I needed. I desperately needed. It's not a want for me. I see people that want wealth but they don't need it. A part of me would have died if I didn't get that. So then do you just have a subsistence level? Um, yeah, if you wanna worry. Yeah, if you wanna uh, not be set up with, for your family to withstand the inevitable setbacks financially of life, sure, if you wanna think without any kind of prudence that some bad things might happen. Well, my gosh, you're, you're still vulnerable and even more so because now you don't have a job. Yeah, so uh, if you're asking about more than enough, I always say in the book that having enough is not nearly enough. You need more than enough because more than enough allows you to withstand the setbacks of life. And as far as what I was concerned, I, I wanted to be able to have freedom. I wanted to, and freedom to me is, is life without worry. So if I was living on that edge, I would be, I'd be living small and I would be, I would be worried. So oh, yeah. yeah, I needed that. I needed power. So I find it uh, interesting that the concept of the book is uh, of the father teaching lessons, money lessons, or or broader life lessons to his son. And I mean, I want to kind of dig into that and, and why you chose to organize it that way. You particularly highlighted when we first started talking that you were the first in your family to graduate from college. And sounds like your you said your grandfather. Uh, died penniless. So do you feel that you had to, these lessons that are incorporated in the book, you had to learn them on your own or did you kind of learn good money habits from your father, even though maybe he didn't implement them, if that makes sense? 
You know, I, my father was a lead by example type of guy, you know, and it's, it's maybe it's generational, but I don't think that generation sat down and talked to the kids the way my generation sat down and talked to the kids. Uh, you know, that was a different game there. And so he was doing his job in his generation if he provided and showed me by example, which he did. But there's a lot of people out there that work hard and show their kids how to work hard. And their, son, their, their, their sons may learn how to work hard and dig ditches the rest of their lives. I needed to teach my son hard work but also uh, strategy. I needed him to understand time management. I needed him to understand the power of thinking and sitting down in a room alone and figuring this whole thing out and not just living like everybody else because everybody else ends up broke. I mean, statistically, the average person has 170,000 in retirement. That's not good. And so I needed to teach him how to be an outlier. That was my goal. You cannot, you cannot teach that in a conversation. And the reason I did it for my son, what kind of father would I be if I, if I felt this much pain and I see my son, he's in college, he's entering the same world that I was, and he's about to walk into that unprepared as I was. Well, what should I do? Sit down and watch a football game? <laughs> I had the power now of time, the power of, of time to sit down and really educate him and do my best so that he would at least know how to achieve a fuller life. You know, it's not about stuff. And if, you, if it's stuff for you, well, the hell with it. Get stuff. Whatever, whatever floats your boat if you earn it. But for me, I wanted him to be free. I wanted him to know how to be free. I needed him to know how to be free. So you could pass those lessons on uh, that you learned for yourself. I would die with regrets if I did not. Mm -hmm. So, I'm, I mean... I would be remiss if we didn't dig into some of these lessons because there are a lot of folks out there with their own kids getting out of college or many of our listeners too are, are young people who are trying to form their own mindset with, with money, with financial freedom, and maybe they don't have a father like you to teach them these things. So let's dive into it and, and get into some of these important lessons that you realize you need to pass down to your son. You know, Taylor, I, I, there's a, there's a hundred in the book, right? But I would say the theme that weaves its way through the Wealthy Gardener book is that if you have a money problem, then you need to change something in your life. <laughs> Let's start there. You need to change your thoughts or your beliefs. Uh, you need to change your behaviors and you need to change your schedule. You need to examine that schedule. What are you doing? Not what are you scheduling, but what did you do? What have you done? You know, there's a big gulf between intention and execution in this world. And that gulf is usually bridged by our thoughts and beliefs. So let's talk about the starting point of it all. You know, I think people are mixed up. I will tell you that wealth as a goal for me was good. It's okay to want wealth as a goal. Now you're there's a dog there's a dog in my book named Buddy, <laughs> and Buddy tends to bark a lot right at the most inopportune times in my book, <laughs> and so that's some of the fiction that I made up. Even though my wife knows I'm on a podcast, Buddy will still bark at inopportune times. <laughs> but at least in this podcast, Taylor, you don't have her walking behind me with a laundry basket, which has happened several times before. Okay, so getting back to it, the wealth, 
you know, people will, they will always want to tell you that, you know, you do things for the love of the service of others. And they say, don't think about the money. Well, okay. I say it's okay to think about the money because what they don't understand that if, if you start with wealth as a goal and you choose a, a high income and you find within those incomes, a suitable service that you can actually build a knack for, a competence for, then you are gonna serve a good many people during the course of your life to gain wealth. People think that you have to get wealthy and give back to society. They don't understand that you give to society in order to get wealthy. It's huge. And so now we're talking about beliefs. And while we're talking about beliefs, let's talk about expectations because expectations are huge. It's not enough to want wealth. It's just not enough to want wealth. Everybody wants wealth. The question is who will expect nothing less? You don't get what you want. That's what's important. You get what you'll tolerate. You fall to the level of what you'll tolerate. And so it's very important to decide what you will not take less than. And so expectations and beliefs, they're enormous, you know, those kind of things. Individuality, you know, we talk about the, the very first part where, yeah, it's, it's so important to set a goal for wealth, but wait a minute, it's gonna be a hell of a lot easier for you if you find out what you're good at or what you're capable of becoming good at. What's your predisposition for competence? Like there's something that you can do better than me and there's something that I can do better than you. We've gotta find out what those things are and that's our individuality and that's our advantage. We have to know these kind of things. And that search at the start can make this next 40 years that much smoother for us. It's going to be a struggle if we don't get certain things straight on the front end. You know, put Warren Buffett over in a job where he might be a chemical engineer like you. That's the thing about it. Now, that boy, when he was young, he used to read the paper and count the letters figure out how many B's there are were on page two. Now you're gonna institutionalize that boy or you're gonna say, what is it about that peculiar trait that is marketable? And then develop the marketability of your individuality. That's your advantage. Those are the kind of things I needed my son to know. That's just three of the things that come off the top of my head. Uh, but lessons learned uh, along you know, the hard way, along the way for my own financial freedom. That's just a few. Nice, nice. And, you know, there was a point in there where, you know, you were, like you said, you were 30, you realized that financial freedom was a dire need for you. And you set a goal of a, a certain level of income by the time you were 50, you met it. But there must have been a change there that you made either at 30 or maybe a couple of years later. It seems to me there was likely a time where you realized I'm doing these wrong things to go, to go back to the time example, I'm spending my time in the wrong way, or maybe I'm not doing the right thing for myself. I'm not being true to myself, like you were just saying. So what are some of those things that you changed that ultimately, you know, worked for you? Because I, I love this idea that uh, I guess Tony Robbins has of success leaves clues. So some of that metagame that you applied to achieve that goal. You know, Peter Drucker, you know, the time management guru, he, I, I love what he says in, in what, what you're talking about right now. You know, I wasn't a guy doing a lot of things wrong. Okay. Peter Drucker will say, you have to get rid of the good things to make room for the best things. You know, there's a lot of choices that became choice restrictions for me. 
I wasn't the guy that was able to buy the swimming pool. I'm not the guy, the choice of watching TV, that's no longer in my repertoire of choices. My choice is, do I do this or do that within a productive framework? And you're going to understand that because I heard you once say that you don't find satisfaction in life by doing things that don't give you a sense of long-term purpose. So now let's talk about that for the underlying theme. What did I, you know, in specifics, I'll tell you the first thing I did was I didn't quit my day job. Okay. That's the biggest thing people always talk about. I got to, I got to make massive change. Well, don't quit your day job. It's a duty. That's what you do to stay alive on planet earth. That's not a sacrifice. We all do it. That's par for the course. So the changes in life, the changes in my life had to happen in my leisure. That's all. So in my leisure, I started studying wealthy people. I started building my knowledge base. I started reading a lot of books. I built my education on goals, on goal achievement, on personal finance, on real estate. And you, my friend, this is what I was going to bring up. And I, one of the reasons I'm so excited to talk to you, there are not many people in this world who have read The Intelligent Investor by Benjamin <laughs> Ram. That is a monster book to get through. I got through it. If you got through it front to back, you're the only other person I know face to face that did it. It's, it's dry. It's quality. But most people can't get through it. So those are the kind of books. Yes, I, you read those kind of things. You educate yourself. After that, Taylor, I built myself. I, I really believe in building yourself as if you're, you're preparing yourself for a battle or a competitive event. You know, you have to get that inside right. So goals, visualizations, all, I do all that kind of stuff. No doubt about it. Uh, I do it to this day as a daily ritual. I did it this day, even though I'm retired. I get my mind straight every day. But then you move into strategy. I needed to increase my offense and decrease and increase my defense in life. I needed to get myself in a position where I bought assets that earned money while I slept. I mean, part of what I saw, wealthy people do that. So I had to get myself in that position. Problem is assets cost money. I had none. And so the, that's the dilemma. So what do you do? Well, there's all this leisure time. So this leisure time, I'm either going to watch TV and do mindless things, or I'm going to do things that really contribute to my freedom in life. And so I ventured into chiropractic as my major job. That didn't change. I went into building a rental real estate business. Okay. So now, you know, when you're building that, that's a pretty active pursuit. And then I went into a flipping business. So I have a three-pronged attack by increasing my income. All the while for those next two decades, I did not increase my spending. So I'm tight fisted over here. I got a multi-pronged attack on offense. I start making money. I'm, I'm investing the money. The money I'm investing is making more money. And all of a sudden, you got a snowball. Nobody, but the, nobody in the entire world sees it but you. Because if you're doing it right, it's invisible. Because spending is, you know, I'm, I'm building a river. I'm not building a big house. And that river is my security. That's what happened right up to the age of 49. And then I had the power to eliminate one of those jobs. That was the flipping first. That's a beast of a job. I don't want to deal with contractors over the age of 50. I took that out. Secondly, I eased out of chiropractic. And now I have a, a passive real estate business that I oversee a manager of. That's how it all played out for me. I'm sorry if that's a long story, but that's how it went right there. No, I think that's super important. And the details of that story are what's important. And one of the things that I've seen uh, when folks kind of get to that point where they want to start eliminating those jobs or maybe reducing their risk profile 
you know, that, that, that risk profile is a big part of it. And when they remove a more dependable stream of income, like, uh, the, the chiropractic job, for example, for yourself, probably the most dependable of all of those streams of income, you change the risk profile or, or adapt the strategy of those that remain. So did you do that? Had you had that like intention of, you know, managing the risk from the outset? You know what risk uh, uh, to me is, is about not knowing what you're doing, you know, and, and really not having a plan that uh, has been well thought out tested given time, you know, you, you test these plans a bit by bit. So by the time I, I, my plan was to build a passive income of a big amount, 220,000 a month coming to me. Right. Uh, so by the time I got to that level, it didn't feel like much of a risk to me. Now, now I would say that I'm a sissy. I, I, I would say that, yeah, it would, it would sound great if I boldly ran into retirement. By God, get out of my way. <laughs> I'm a free man. You can't stop. It's not like that at all. I am the most cautious. I think courage is overrated. I think sometimes uh, courage can make you run right off a cliff. And so I think that caution and courage in the right balance are a really important mix. I was cautious. I had 20000 coming to me before I pulled that job. Absolutely. That's not too risky. That's great. Yeah, that's true. That's that's not too risky. Now, um, I also wanted to ask you, you know, your son's reception of these things. I mean, I'm sure you probably more or less wrote the book together or you consulted with him on the book throughout the development of it. But I would not be surprised if there were a few things in there where he said, hey, dad, you know, this is a little ridiculous or he pushed back a little bit or something like that. Does there is there anything that comes to mind where you thought this is going to be a slam dunk? He's going to take it, or I'm right, and he pushed back and maybe changed your mind on some things. Oh man, your your insight is impressive. To me, <laughs> no, absolutely. It's, I've never been asked that before. That's exactly what happened, and exactly what I demanded. You know, the relationship. People will say that they'll hear the story sometimes and think, well. He, Here's, here's the almighty dad speaking down to his, his son, who's a sponge of knowledge. And that's not the way it works, man. If you've ever tried to talk to a college kid, you better treat him like, treat him like an equal, number one, because his professors do. So let's, let's uh, step up. Let's not forget Steve Jobs started his business at the age of 21. These kids are, have a lot of potential. Treat them like they do. And so that's how I came in with Mike, my son. I said, Mike, I, I would like to... Uh, work with you on this. I would like to have you put some eyes on uh, some of my my life lessons. I want to put. I want to leave a legacy, man. I want to leave it behind. I, I I feel like I've accomplished something. I, you know, I went from a, a family that was a coal miner not too long ago. I am now at a position of of pretty good, a pretty good position. Let's just say this: there had to be something I did right here. Let's talk about it. And I read a million books. I think I can write a book that matters, but I want your help. And so I approached it like that. And it's exactly what you said. He'll, I said, I'm not asking for some feedback. Yes, man. In fact, you're doing me no service whatsoever if you don't pick this apart and give me some pushback every week. So every Sunday, he's at his, he's at his uh, college by then. And I would email off probably two chapters. These chapters are little four pages. We have really tight four page lessons. All right, bring it back. And he would feel like a failure if he couldn't 
add something to it or push back, like you said, on something. So you're exactly right. And there were times when his pushback meant, you know, it's my fault as an author, uh, because if your subject doesn't understand you, it's not their fault. It's your fault. Make it, make it understandable. You know, so there were times I had to clarify. There were concepts he didn't always understand. And he pushed back naively. And I said, all right, son. And, I, <laughs> and we, we can talk about this. Now sit down and listen. Because this is how it is in the real world. I've been here. I'm preparing you for war. There are other times when he says something. I said, you know, maybe you're right. And he, we would correlate. There was, a, there was a collaboration of it. And so if you notice the subtitle of this book is Life Lessons on Prosperity Between Father and Son. That's what it was. It wasn't from a father to son. It was between a father and son. Back and forth. That word was chosen for a reason. And that's why, to be honest with you, that's why I asked, because I thought that was probably a deliberate uh, choice and he, and he pushed back on some things. But, you know, it is important to remember, you know, especially thinking about myself and my own experience, being a former college kid and getting out into the real world and then getting kicked in the teeth a couple of times and realizing, man, I didn't know anything when I was fresh out of college that you know, some of that pushback, no matter what it was, I mean, some of it had to have been silly, and then he probably had some important insights. He's an intelligent kid. If I talk to him about it now, he's now he's going on twenty six, doing well. He's you know finance finance guy down in the south, and he says to him it was just a continuation of the process of parenting between he and I. We we grew up kind of as friends. We had a really authentic communication where we could go back and forth, and we we always talked about ideas, things that mattered like that. You know, and we all both enjoyed talking about ideas and philosophy. And, you know, that's kind of what this book is. It's a philosophy book on success and financial achievements. And so for us, it, it sounds abnormal to others. For us, it wasn't that much of a big, big change compared to our, except for the fact that it was all kind of in a format uh, of, of a written book, you know, lesson to lesson to lesson. Otherwise, the communication aspect wasn't that foreign to us, to be honest with you. Hmm. Interesting. So I wonder if you've thought about this, this, the same lessons or the same concept, but, you know, not to make a life plan for your son, but between a grandfather and a grandson, if you, you know, do get to that point, how would that lens maybe change a few things? Because obviously, it's obviously not the same type of relationship. So have you thought about that, considered that, and especially, maybe in light of things that you wish you got from your grandfather. I mean, they're, they're, they're different, right? You know what uh, was important to me, what, what you're saying takes me back to the writing of it. The criteria that we used were we were looking for timeless principles, nothing that would be out of date next generation, nothing that was out of date, things that have worked forever, universal truths. That was the really important thing. Uh, we weren't after about how to use the internet for uh, YouTube uh, profits, you know, something like trendy like that. We are more about philosophy that doesn't change. And so I have to say that even though I had my son in my sights, there's going to be a day when I'm not around. I'm on the fall end of my life here, right? Spring, summer, fall. And I understand the fact that there's going to be kids around when I'm not. And they can have their grandfather's book here. 
I can be talking to you. I can tell you that whenever I was building my own, my own financial freedom, I came from poverty, man, uh, from the start. The lessons that I learned were from dead people. They weren't even around, you know, the, the people who wrote those books. And so I, you know, I was so influenced by Napoleon Hill, by uh, the William Clement Stones, by, by the people of the past, the Jim Rohns, people that weren't even around. Well, that's what's possible with books. And so I'm not too far away from the grandfather talking to a grandson. In fact, the wealthy gardener in the book, the character is an old man, and he's, he does uh, have a special need to speak to the, trouble, the troubled teens at a reformatory. They're quite a different age there. And he teaches classes over there as well for, to, well, for various reasons. Let's put it that way. <laughs> and what's interesting about that, Taylor, what I didn't see coming, and I'm the author of the book, is I get letters from prisoners and from troubled teens, from reformatories. How cool was that? I didn't see that coming. I was writing a book for my son, and there was a narrative going through it with a bunch of characters, some of whom were the troubled, the boys of the troubled teens. They could only get ahead if you teach them how to get ahead financially. Otherwise, they're going to go back and, uh, into the, a life of uh, crime. So to give them an advantage, you know, all that, right? Little did I imagine I'm getting letters of thanks from prisoners. How cool is that? That is very cool. That is very cool. And you're taking on kind of that father role that probably many of them didn't 75% don't have fathers. Wow. 75. Wow. That's incredible. And I'm, I'm glad you, you brought up the, uh, the, the gardener character. And I wanted to make sure we addressed why the title of the book is the wealthy gardener and like, sure. Why that concept? Absolutely. I mean, because the garden throughout history has always been a metaphor for a person's time on earth. So, you know, the, the, the great example, you know, I, I remember uh, St. Francis of Assisi, there was people walking by uh, a road in France, St. Francis of Assisi is hoeing his garden and they, they stopped and they asked the saint, you know, if you knew this was the last day of your life, how would you spend this last day? And St. Francis looks up and he says, I would continue hoeing my garden. And he started hoeing his garden and he, he started minding his own business again. They walked down the road. The garden is a metaphor for life. He's doing what he wants. He's applying himself to his time. That's what the garden metaphor is all about. Wealth in this book is about money. It's about having more than enough money. I wanted a book that addressed that alone. And so the wealthy gardener, the name for that, that's, that's how it all happened. There was a guy who created wealth and uh, he, he had a small vegetable garden. He grew that garden into a farm, vineyard and winery. He employs most of the town. He believes in wealth. He, he, he earned his slowly by putting his days to use. It all kind of worked out in the end. So uh, somewhere along the line, we're able to put all these timeless principles that I was talking about earlier, weaving that into a story of six characters and giving people the experience of financial freedom should they choose to pursue that. So that was my goal. Nice, I love it. And I think they should choose to pursue it or certainly everybody uh, listening to us right now is likely to uh, already be on the pursuit, but it sounds like this book can definitely help them move further faster or maybe move in a better direction for themselves. Right now, we're gonna take a quick break for our sponsor. All right, John, I've got three questions I ask every guest on the show. Are you ready? 
I'm not sure, Taylor. I'll tell you when I'm done, whether I'm ready or not, <laughs> but I'll try. I'm sure you will do well. First one, what's the best investment you ever made other than in your education? A $10 book called Think and Grow Rich. That book was the first philosophy of success that I was ever exposed to, a blue-collar kid in the middle class. And that book was, to me, probably the reason that I felt it was so important for me then to write my own book. I, I give you a fantastic investments that work out along the way of an investment career. Nothing, nothing would have happened without controlling your mind and getting your head straight and learning the philosophy of success that I learned through that book. $10 was the best investment of my life. No doubt about it. I love that. It's a very classic, classic book. And so many folks name it as one of their favorites. And it's a great example. So we had your best investment. Now we move on to the worst investment. What is the worst investment you ever made? I was just talking about this the other day. <laughs> okay. So, so here I am. I, here's the principle of life. Okay. And I'll, I'll bring it, I'll bring it around. You, people think that they have to buy something that will force them to take time off and, and get more balance out of life. Well, that's how I was. I was, I was wrong. What I bought was a bass boat, Taylor. I bought a bass boat used. And I said, if I buy this bass boat, by God, of course, I'll use this bass boat. I have a place that I like. <laughs> and uh, naturally, I'll spend more time away from work because I have a bass boat. All right. So I bought this thing used. $5,000. What a steal. And so I took it down to the lake. It didn't run after the second try. Third weekend down there, it sunk. It had a, it had a oh, no. You know how you, you, you dock a boat and you tie it to the dock with ropes? It's hanging off the, it's, it's hanging off the dock underwater. Literally, it's underwater. It's tilting my dock to the side because it's so heavy. What happened was it sprung a leak in a, in a little tube. The tube was feeding a, uh, a little place where the water was supposed to go, and the boat filled up. Okay, we got that fixed. We fixed the engine. It was submerged forever. And then we, we got a long story short. I paid 5,000 to start this. Two, two years later, I was into it another 2,000. But by then, I would have backed this thing off the a cliff <laughs> and, and considered it a blessing. Thank you, God, for taking this, this trailer and boat. But I didn't. I, I had to put even more money into it. And then I finally tried to sell it and nobody would buy it. I finally got rid of this thing for $500. Oh boy. I bought a boat. It frustrated me for two years. It sunk. It had everything wrong with it. And I sold it later for the, probably the cost of the prop. That was the best investment, the most embarrassing investment of my life. Right there. <laughs> Ouch. Well, what's the, what's that saying? The two best days in a man's life are the day he buys his boat and the day he sells his boat. <laughs> I'm serious. I, I think it would have given me more joy to back it off of a cliff and watch it roll down the hill. <laughs> you know, yeah. That's wow. Yeah. Save you a little, save you a little heartache and get you some finality. 500, 500 bucks. Uh, I should have done that as opposed to saving it, for, you know, selling it for $500. I, now that I think of it, that was a mistake. <laughs> My favorite question here at the end of the show is what is the most important lesson that you've learned in business and investing? 
You know what? I think for me, uh, Taylor, I can speak over the course of a lifetime now. So, you know, I, I start at the age of 20. I'm 55 now. So I have a little bit of time to look over things. And I, I would say that I start as a chiropractor, like, uh, like we spoke of in the beginning of the show, where I'm down $200,000. I have no knowledge whatsoever. I'm completely unprepared for life. And I graduate. And among my peers, I, there are so many people more intelligent. They have their debts paid off. They're ready to enter into life. The, it wasn't a fair start. I was disadvantaged, if you want to say that, okay, going into this race. Okay, go out there 30 years. And at the age of, well, 25 years, go out the age of 50. I'm retired with a $240,000 retirement. And I don't say that to impress people outside of the fact that to impress upon them that it worked out that way for me for one reason only. I used my leisure differently. I used my leisure differently. Inside the wall of our clinics, we all did the same thing. Imagine a gun goes off. We run out there and we all go to our clinics 40 to 45 hours a week. By the age of 50, our results are unfathomably different. Why? Well, it was my leisure. People did different things. They have they, they did different things. They're good people. They just golfed. They had different pursuits. They had their mind on different things. But because I set that goal on wealth, my leisure turned into gold that created a river that gives me now the time freedom to do whatever I want and to, to write a book and to pursue more meaning than chasing a dollar. So to me, I value time as the most important asset of life and business. That's great. Hope everybody out there lets that one sink in. John, thank you for joining us today, sharing these lessons and also for compiling many more lessons in the book. If folks want to learn more about you, if they want to get in touch, if they want to get a copy of the book, where can they find you? You know what? Uh, the copies of the book are everywhere now. We've been translated into different languages. And so, you know, the Amazons, the it's everywhere. They're in the physical bookstores now nationally. So nice. that's that. Uh, I would say that, you know, unlike a lot of authors, I'm not running around, you know, I'm not, I'm not a speaker that, that wants to just be, hear myself speak. I still have a life outside of uh, being an author. That was something I did. And, uh, you know, so I do have a website, but I, you'll see me blog every now and then, but not a lot. Uh, you'll see me post a video every now, but not a lot. So wealthygardener.com is where I'll be, but I'll also be tending my own garden. I guarantee you that. Nice. nice. Well, I love the, the, the philosophical angle that you take on this as well. And really living the, I, I put, maybe put these words in your mouth, but living your life on your own terms, especially now. But it sounds like when you say that you use your leisure differently than many of your colleagues. You lived your life on your own terms. Ever since you made the, the passive income goal, you decided what to do and you invested your leisure time accordingly. And that allows you to spend your time now in whichever way you so please. And one of those ways is by taking some time to talk to me and the Passive Wealth Strategies listeners. I really appreciate it. To everybody out there, thank you for tuning in. If you're enjoying the show, please leave us a rating interview on Apple Podcasts. It's very much appreciated. It helps other people learn about the show. If you know anyone who could use a little bit more passive wealth in their lives, please share the show with them and bring them into the tribe. Thanks for tuning in once again. I hope you have a great day and a great rest of your week. 
I will talk to you on the next one. Bye-bye.